Hi, this is Tim Minear. You may know me from my thundering failures of the past. Drive, The Inside, Firefly, Wonderfalls, Terriers, all canceled long before their times. Wait, I've, what the hell is the name Spoiler of this podcast? Country. And you are listening to Spoiler Country. Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. the cult of Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I am Johnny Horsley, and today on the show, we got Tim Minear, screenwriter extraordinaire who's worked on such things as Lois and Clark, The New Adventure of Superman, The X-Files, Strange World, Angel, one of my favorite shows, love that show, and he actually wrote some of the episodes that I really liked, American Horror Story, Drive, Dollhouse, Terrier, Chicago Club, I mean, so much stuff, and we got him on the show, and Jeff, the get, Jeff, Big Hoss, sat down with Tim and chatted about his career and more. So let's just take a listen here to Tim Manier in his words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we had the fantastic Tim Minear. How's it going, uh, Mr. Minear? It's going great. I mean, the world ended in March, <laughs> but I'm still here. Has it been made um, more difficult for you to get your projects done from um, your your home, or have you been able to do some of your work? Well, it's interesting. It, you know, back in March, we had just finished shooting 911 Lone Star, and we were, and actually also 911. <clears throat> but I still had about eight episodes of 911 that needed to finish in post, and I was driving back to the lot in March to go sit in an editing room to work on the next episode. And that's right when people were saying, maybe you shouldn't be in small and close places with people. So I turned around and came home and started doing posts from home on zoom. And I cut the last, I think eight episodes from my house and and, working remotely with my editors, you know, they, they, they managed to get the avids, hooked into the zooms. And so it was almost like being in the editing room, except I didn't have to wear pants. So that, that, that was yeah. kind of good, but it was, it was, it was, that was kind of slow. And then when we, we've started up our writer's rooms for both shows, you know, we had been, I think we were about three scripts into American horror story, but we hadn't, you know, we had, we had just finished shooting season one and season three of 911 and 911 Lone Star. And then the show got picked, both shows got picked up. And so I've hired writers and we started writers rooms virtually. So I have now for almost, you know, five or six months, well, really about five months, 
have been working with writers on both shows that I have never actually <laughs> met in person. Isn't technology a wonderful thing? Can you imagine how difficult the pandemic would be, let's say, 20 years ago before you could just go online with someone? I, I do, but I also I also wonder if maybe we would have been less prone to just lock everything down. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, there just may have been a, a slightly different approach to things. But the, the technology has absolutely allowed us to keep the thing moving a little bit, but we're just barely getting the the wheels rolling and getting the the apparatus back up to actually start shooting. I mean, I haven't shot anything yet in this age of this pandemic. So I, I have friends who have, my friend Sean Ryan, who runs SWAT, they've been back for a couple of weeks. So they've been shooting, doing physical production in LA. So he's sort of been the canary in the coal mine, the COVID <laughs> so- mine. So I'm, I, I'm saying, yeah, so go ahead. So I've been, I've been getting information from him, but it's going to be it's so be in a, a normal world. If this was all things being equal, everything is normal. The new shows would be premiering normally in most networks September and October. Was nine one one and well, was nine one one nine one one Lone Star scheduled before COVID to have come out during this time period? Or would it always have been maybe a delayed start. No, they were both going to be premiering in September. You know, we were ordered for 18 episodes for both, and it was going to be a normal, you know, a normal season. 18 episodes sometimes now is considered a full season order. You know, it used to be 24 and then 22, and and now it's, you know, sometimes 18. But, you know, we would have been, we would have been well into post-production on some of these episodes. So when are, when are we looking towards a 911 and 911 Lone Star premiere? I don't have an exact premiere date yet. I noticed today that ABC has moved uh, some of their, what would have been their fall shows into like November, I think, in terms of premiering. So it, it'll be, you know, it'll be, it'll look more like a mid-season show probably for both of them, because again, we haven't actually started shooting yet. The, the, the one upside of this for us, if you can call it an up, I mean, this is actually an upside, is that usually we fall behind on scripts pretty early. And, you know, I know, I remember last year we did a, we did a, um, a solar storm for the season finale of Lone Star and because it was, you know, it was an event, but I could produce it because it's an invisible yep. event. Like just things just start going crazy. And I also knew that, you know, somebody had pitched a, a 911 call from outer space. So it's not exactly outer space, but this is sort of a great set piece of an astronaut who was in the International Space Station in the, in the way of the solar storm. And it's just a very haunting, moving call from space where he gets reconnected with his family and gets to say goodbye as he dies of radiation oh, poisoning. Uh, but, but for instance, that episode, uh, we were three or four days into pre-production <laughs> on that episode, and we still didn't know what it was going to be. In fact, we were even talking about maybe the season finale should be outbreak. <laughs> maybe it should be. Maybe it should be a pandemic. <laughs> And then we thought, well, they, I've heard about this Wuhan thing. Maybe that that might turn into a thing. So maybe let's not do that. <laughs> no. But we're, we're usually really far behind on scripts. And this year, we'll be going into our first day of pre-production on the first episode of the season with, you know, eight or ten scripts of both shows already written, which is unheard of for us. Now, I know some people are, and I've heard some debate uh, online um, about whether or not Things that come out now, new shows, but new movies, 
should incorporate what's going on in the, in the world now, such as what's going on with the COVID, COVID situation and the lockdown with masks and everything else. Do you feel a need or any other, was there any process or I thought about maybe having um, some recognition of COVID in your 911 series? Otherwise, maybe have someone wear masks or have something to do about social distancing or do you want it, or is it better to keep the entertainment world in the realm of entertainment and not let it meld with what's going on in our real world? Well, I, I would say the ever-changing, although it really hasn't changed that much, has it? World situation has been the, the, the Rubik's Cube of, of sort of how to proceed with either of these shows. And I made a determination early on that I, I just really felt like we couldn't ignore it on these first responder shows, that, it, that we would just, it would just be too quaint for us to be operating in a parallel universe where this global pandemic wasn't affecting what was happening on screen. And it would have been such a, such a long time since our audience had been with our characters that to me, it was important that when these characters reappear in people's living rooms, that they have been through what that audience okay. has been through, that they've been isolated, that they've gone through this pandemic. And when you're doing a first responder show, I just don't see how you can ignore it. So uh, the answer is, is yes, we're going to be observing COVID protocols the way first responders do on screen. So when they arrive at 911 calls, they will be wearing masks. They will be social distancing when necessary. And the the world will reflect as best as I can prognosticate what it might look like in a couple of months when we air, what the audience uh, has been experiencing too, which theoretically will also contribute to keeping my actors and crew safe. Because if the characters on screen are wearing masks and socially distancing is needed when they're interacting with guest cast. Theoretically, what's happening on screen is also protecting the actor who's playing that character. No, that, that, that makes great sense. The, the one question I would definitely have on that is actors are also, this, is, this may be a, a complete stereotype, but are a little on the vein side. How do they, have they discussed what it's going to be when they're, they're going to have their face covered? And obviously, that's part of you know, showing who they are, their faces on screen. Do they have any issues with that or do they discuss any concerns? You know, again, we, we're just barely reopening our offices and you know, getting all those ducks in a row. So I will have you know, in-depth conversations with all the cast. I think they're just like anybody else, right? They they want to make sure that th- that they're protected, that the production is moving forward in a in a safe and sane way. And I don't think there's going to be any sort of vanity issues because they're not going to be playing every scene right, wearing right, a right. mask. But but it does make sense when they jump off those trucks that they put on the the COVID masks. And I and 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 people are so used to seeing it now that I just think that that they they may end up not seeing it because they're so used to it. Now, so. from someone who's not as familiar with how a TV show or is, is produced, because they're wearing masks, are they going to have to be also recorded later on for clarity? Or are they, is the dialogue always recorded later to make sure it's heard um, properly? Well, no, we try to get everything on the day, you know, re- record the, the, the dialogue live. There are instances where you have to come in and do an ADR line, which is additional dialogue recording. Often those things don't quite sound like they, you can, you can tell when something's dubbed sometimes. And I know that particularly when we were doing those last eight episodes of, of nine one one, you know, normally we would bring our cast into a looping stage where they would stand at a mic and look at a screen and it's all done in a studio and, 
and we they do as many takes as they need to. But when we had to do a couple of ADR lines for the last eight episodes, people were literally having to do them on their phones, oh. you know, or over Zoom or something because they couldn't go into a studio because everything was locked down. And some of those loop lines are not the best. They don't. I mean, it it can it can really work if it's during a nine one one call. So that if I have a sort of a crappy ADR recording that sounds like it's over a phone, then I would just put that part of the conversation through the headphone of the 911 operator and you would yeah. never know the difference. Um, but we'll see. I, I Again, I haven't gone out there to shoot anything with those masks. So I imagine it will present challenges to the uh, sound recordist as well as uh, everyone else. Yeah, and, and like I said, the nice thing um, about the 911 show, what, what I really enjoy about it is that it does have a very real feel to it i mean obviously there's it's drama and it's fiction about it but it has a, a really genuine feel to it and so are the shows drawn from actual 911 calls well y- y- they're real in the sense that you know we want you to feel like you can relate to the characters and that you sort of buy what's going on but you know as a as a rule we try to to make our reality more pushed than reality. So you probably won't see a tsunami taking out Santa Monica Mm. anytime soon. You probably won't see a baby flush down a toilet. However, the most outrageous cases that you'll see on our shows are usually the ones that we found in real life. So that baby being flushed down the toilet and pulled out of a pipe in the pilot episode of 911, which was actually sort of the case that kind of inspired the direction the show would go for Ryan Murphy was a real case that happened in, in China. We find a lot of our cases either in China or Florida. <laughs> of course, Florida. <laughs> yeah. So as long as Florida man exists, we should be, we should, we should be pretty flush with cases. But, it, and, you know, given, the, given 2020, I've, ta- I've been taken to say, suddenly the world has become more pushed than yeah. my shows. So how do, you make, how do you make a show where, you know, it's an Irwin Allen disaster movie one week, and then it's you know it's the Darwin Awards the next week. Like how do you how, how do you how do you get your show? How do you push it just slightly past reality when reality is so pushed? And and that has been well, a challenge. Have you ever considered making a second spinoff called Nine One One Florida or Nine One One Tampa Bay? You know when we sat down to come up with the first or with, for Lone Star, m- my inclination was to set it in Miami. <laughs> I do I, because I do think Florida would be a great location for for one yep. of these shows. It's it's got, it's got the blue skies and the palm trees that we sort of have in LA, but also it's got uh, a very rich multicultural life, and it has you know retirees and bodybuilders. It's got it's got it's got everything, and and alligators and hurricanes. So I, I still think that there might be a there might be a future so in Miami. When you were discussing um, when you finally settled on making it the Lone Star, Texas. How, how did that determination come from? Like, how did you determine, let's actually make it here in Texas? What, what led to that decision? That's where Ryan wanted to set gotcha. it. Gotcha. He just, he just felt like, he just felt like he was interested in putting it into a, you know, a quote unquote red state. And that, because that is a big part of our audience. And, and then, and then I think, you know, it, it's interesting. We're sort of a blue state and a red state. Cause it's, it's an Austin and Austin is, you know, very blue surrounded by a lot of red. But what it does give you is it gives you, you know, just outside of Austin, you have, at least the way we play it, you know, you have sort of like traditional rural Texas mixed with the, with the, with the urban hip city of Austin with the music scene. Like it's got all the kinds of 
diversity that we have in LA to draw cases from. And, you know, in a similar fashion, on 911, it seems like there's one firehouse that services, you know, there used to be a an anchor on, on local news here called Jerry Dumphy. And he would say, you know, from the mountains to the deserts to the ocean. Well, that's pretty much the, that's pretty much where our fire department works from the mountains to the <laughs> desert, to the ocean. They cover, they cover the whole thing. Now, one thing that's also great about your show is that the cast of your 911 programs are so large. What is the um, challenge there in balancing all these different characters and making sure they all are properly developed, that they all have given um, equal, um, not maybe equal time, but enough time so they have their moments in the sun, as it were? How, as a writer, how do you balance all that? Well, it is a challenge. And the way you balance it is you just kind of have to, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like playing jazz or, or, or freeform jazz or something. You just, you, when you feel like you've, you've neglected a character, you bring that character in. And the thing that's, that we found on 911, which is so great, is that different combinations of those characters give you different things. So Hen and Chimney are like best friends, but then, you know, Hen has her wife and then Chimney has a romance with, with Buck's sister, Maddie. So, you know, you, you, you can service them all because if they're all on the same squad and they're going out and responding to a call, then they're all sort of there in the water. And so in, in a, you know, a character who maybe doesn't have a personal story in an episode might do something cool uh, on a call. And then, and then again, you just, once you start to feel like you're missing somebody or you haven't serviced somebody in a while, it's time to get to that person. That that's sort of how we approach it on both shows. And well, on on the regular nine one one program, or maybe I don't know if you call it the main one or the the parent nine one one. We call it mothership. Call it mothership. Okay, so the mothership nine one one. You have the amazing actress Angela Bassett on that show, and Thank she's a yeah. she was an actress. She won the N N A W C P Image Award for Best Actress in one year. Um, I think for your show. What does she bring to to her character? And do you find yourself writing the character of Athena uh, Grant differently because Angela Bassett beca- got the role and is that character? Well, what I would say is this, that that role was made for her. So it's not like we were casting around for actors to play Athena. Athena Grant was designed for Angela Bassett. That was one of the, that was one of the original impetus for even making the show is that Ryan wanted to give Angela a hit network TV show along with, he wanted to give Dana Walden who, who ran 20th century Fox, who's now running Disney something for the network. And so it was created for Angela. So it's all tailored to her. And we'd had experience writing for Angela because she'd been on horror story for uh, several seasons. And, uh, you know, I just remember Ryan saying to me, America wants to see Angela Bassett in a uniform. That's what America wants. And you know what? He, he wasn't wrong. Well, well, the show's been extremely popular. I mean, did at what point did you did you realize or were you at and, and were you at all surprised with just how popular 911 proved to be? Uh, yeah, I was surprised. I mean, what's funny is, you know, I had been canceled a lot on network TV and couldn't figure out sort of how to stay on network TV. And had always been itching to, you know, sort of move to cable and do the grittier things or whatever. And I got that opportunity and I got to do horror story and terriers and, and even, but even some of the things I did on network TV were just weird for network TV, like Wonderfalls and the inside. And some of these just things were, were just, they didn't hit a, a nerve with, with a large audience. And the fact that this became so popular so quickly kind of did surprise me because we were just flying by the seat of our pants. 
Like we, we went into this and Ryan was so trusted by Dana and the network that when he said, I want to do this procedural, which is not the first thing you would think of with Ryan Murphy, they said yes. And they ordered it right to series. So we just jumped in and started writing a pilot and started shooting it and then started writing the next episode without kind of knowing what it was. So the first 10 episodes, we sort of found what the thing was. Pretty early on, we, we, we sort of approached it with the ethos of it should feel like you're going down a YouTube rabbit hole of fail <laughs> videos, which is, really, which is really what the first season feels like, and, and even subsequent seasons in some ways. And if you look at a lot of the cases that are on the show, they were, in fact, sort of based on viral videos. You know, that floor giving out at that wedding is, is a viral video. Uh, the guy getting caught up in the, in, the, in the tendrils of a car wash, that was a viral video. So the, so, but you're going sort of from one hilarious thing to one terrifying thing, you know, somebody getting sucked into an escalator or a bouncy house with your kid in it flying 100 feet into the air. So all these things were based on that sort of feeling that you just never stop and you keep going. And there was also something interesting about the calls made the things digestible and bite size. So while you can have kind of a plot that's running through an entire episode, Really, usually what's running through an entire episode are, are personal stories, and then they're interrupted by these calls. And like I said, some of them have body horror. Some of them are simple. It's like, I don't feel well, and then you pull an eight-foot tapeworm out of my ass, <laughs> right? Like, that's, actually quite, that's actually quite easy to shoot, but it's still also just a great idea. <laughs> so when you're planning out these episodes, are you writing the personal stories first and thinking, how can I write, I guess, the calls to maybe go around those events? Or do you think this is a great idea for a call, then write a story around it? It's, it's, it's a combination of all those things, right? It, you, it, I'll give you a perfect example. So last year, we had a script for a Valentine's Day episode on Lone Star. And I, I hated it. I didn't like any of the cases. I didn't like any of the stories. And the thing was in prep. We were about to shoot. And I threw out the script. And then we talked about, well, what could we do here that, that Tim would find <laughs> interesting. And the thing that I, it, so we ended up coming up with this episode called Studs, which we put together sort of almost at the last minute. But if you look at it, it's like there's three personal stories, I think, in there that are meditations on masculinity in one form or another. It's Rob Lowe's character who's on chemo, gets into his head that he will not be able to perform sexually. And sure enough, he meets a beautiful woman and can't get it up. And then it becomes about, will Rob Lowe get a boner? <laughs> that's like, that's, that's that story. Then there's the story of Sierra McLean and Jim Perrick, who are Judd and Grace on the show. And Judd has been going through trauma because of the events of the pilot where he lost his entire firehouse in an explosion. And he hasn't been performing sexually with his wife because he's all wrapped up in his own misery. And so that's sort of about how even sometimes your wife will have needs. And if, even if you don't feel up to it, maybe you kind of need to feel up to it. So that was a meditation on masculinity in a way. And then uh, the third story that was to me the most fascinating was, you know, we have a character on Lone Star who's played by uh, a trans actor and he's playing a trans character. And it was the story of how does a man who is trans date in the world? Like, when do you tell the person that you're interested in your story or, or do you, right? Like that was the whole, that was the whole uh, point of that story. So we had these three stories 
And then once we kind of decided that's what the story we wanted to tell, I think we had a case that I, that had always interested me that was based on a real case, which was a fire in a bull semen factory where these, these canisters of bull semen, when they superheated, started to explode and take off like <laughs> rockets. So when the, when the first responders got to the scene, they're, they're lit, it's literally like they're under mortar fire attack. <laughs> And so I knew that that was a great case. And suddenly it, I had an episode yep. for it, right? We'll put it into the, ma- you know, exploding bullcum. That's perfect <laughs> for the, the episode on masculinity. And then there was always a, there was a case that I was always interested in. Uh, and it's maybe apocryphal, but I know it's been used on a lot of other, I think it was maybe on a law and order and probably on Grey's Anatomy because that's been on for 150 years. So it's done every single case you can imagine. But there was a case where a woman who had been self-medicating, she had cancer. When they went to intubate her, her blood emitted kind of a toxic fume and all the, all the nurses and doctors around wow. her passed out. So, so I, I sort of transferred that idea to a guy who is an incel, an involuntary celibate, who is protesting with his men's group, a women's shelter. So sort of a, it was sort of a pun on toxic yeah. masculinity. He also, he also had this condition and when they intubate him in the ambulance, He's so toxic that it knocks out everybody in the ambulance, then the ambulance rolls, and then we have to rescue everybody <laughs> in the ambulance. So, so, so those cases, what we try to do is if we're doing an episode called Stuck, like we did in season two of 911, the cases will be variations on people being stuck, whether it's a guy who is trying to jump between two, you know, two buildings and get stuck in between, or a, or a, or a dumb frat, uh, frat boy who dares a girl to stick her head in his tailpipe of his monster truck and her head gets stuck. Uh, but then the characters will be stuck in their personal lives, yeah. right? And so we, we take those themes and we try to, we try to tell a story uh, on a theme and then try to have those cases reflect those themes to the point where it almost becomes a drinking game yeah. for the audience. Because how many times can characters in one episode of a show say, karma's <laughs> a bitch or, or I just feel stuck. But that is, you know, it, I mean, it's not, it, it's not subtle. It, but it seems to be. It seems that, to be. That's what I, mean. I, I don't think I ever. I don't think I remember at all a episode description for Nine One One Lone Star described. You know, with a description on the TV. Will Rob Lowe get a boner? That I don't. I don't, I don't remember that being the right. description on the show at all. Right. Right. But you know, the episode's called Studs. Yeah. It start. It starts at a male strip bar. You know, so it, it, it's just a good example of you know, sort of taking a theme and then exploring it, looking at it from different points of view. I, I will admit that often what happens is we'll come up with a theme and then we won't come up with cool cases. Then we'll start to come up with cases and then the cases don't seem like they fit that theme, but then we'll discover a different theme or often instead of it feeling like a theme, it feels more like a pun. <laughs> but I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, whatever, you know, whatever gets me through <laughs> the night. Cool. Now, now that you have, so you have the Mothership series and you have obviously Lone Star so what's so the mothership's the main one? What do you call the the spinoff? Is there a word for that? You know, I mean the Lone Star, but I mean you said the it's called you said the the nine one one is called the Mothership series. What's the name of a series that the spinoff yeah. is called? Is it just called a spinoff? Well, I mean, I don't, I didn't even know if I'd call it a spinoff, right? Because a spinoff sort of suggests that you know that Lou Grant left Mary Tyler Moore to go be on Lou Grant. So I would say that it's it's just another iteration of the universe and the and the franchise. Although what we're doing something this year that I'm super excited about, which we're actually going to be doing a crossover nice. in episode three of Lone Star. We're going to bring some of those 
911 characters over to Texas, and that's going to so be. So when you have great. these two shows going and they're going at the same time, is there ever a concern that one show could overshadow the other show, or one event is going to either play out or be repeated in another in the in the other series? Or uh, well, it's yeah. I mean, that's a that's a that's a constant thing, right? Like you know, and particularly now that they're going to be airing back to back. You know, last year we aired 911, and then we normally go off after Christmas and come back and then there's usually 10 weeks of something that fills in. And I say, usually we've only been on TV for three years, but that's what's happened uh, for the last two years. And this year, Lone Star replaced 911 for those 10 episodes. But this year it's going to be 911 at eight o'clock and Lone Star at nine. So it's going to be, so basically I'm suggesting to Fox that they promote it as Monday night's a disaster. on Fox. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> And so, and I remember back when I was doing Angel, you know, Angel and Buffy used to air on the same night before Buffy went over to UPN. And so we were constantly trying to kind of calibrate what the tones would be so that you wouldn't have two super dark episodes back to back on the same night. And you couldn't sort of repeat ideas that were happening on the sister show. So that is, that is definitely, you know, we're, we're constantly, you know, saying, well, this case is good for 911. And this would be great for Lone Star, but we're kind of already doing that on 911, so we can't do that. So, you know, you we are talking about potentially 18 episodes of both shows. And in each one of those 18 episodes, there's generally four different cases. So it's, you know, it's just a tremendous amount of, of trial and error to come up with things that are cool for even one episode, because you need four things for mm. every episode. And now it's, now it's eight things a night, right? So yeah, you don't want, you know, if you, if we're doing a tsunami on a nine one one, then yeah, I'll do, I'll do a, a solar storm on the other show this year. We're going to be doing, you know, some disaster stuff for the first couple episodes of nine one one, but we're also doing it on Lone Star. Like we will have, you know, a giant dam break and we'll take out the Hollywood sign on nine one one and kind of, the, kind of the same night, the next hour, an earth, a volcano will erupt in Austin, nice. Texas. So that's that's what's going to happen. And the cool thing with Lone Star, I mean, Rob Lowe, I'm a big fan of Rob Lowe since the days of the West Wing. He, he's such a phenomenal actor. And also you have Liv Tyler on that program. Is Having these big stars on that show, is there any ever concern that they will almost like take the oxygen on the show and maybe, and or the gravity of the show and direct it towards them? Or is it? are you able to still say, you know, these are the big names, however, we still can make these other characters and these other actors feel equally as important. You know, it, you know, we have big stars on 911 too, right? Like Peter Krause yeah. is a big star. Like, you know, you know, he's been around for a while and people know who he is and he's a name. And Angela Bassett obviously is like a giant a giant mm -hmm. star, right? Like she was in she was in yeah, I think every big franchise movie last year. She was in Black Panther and she was in Mission Impossible and she was in Bumblebee. You know, she voiced one of the one of the robots in Bumblebee. I didn't know that actually. So <laughs> So, so, uh, you know, so she's, you know, she's, she's quite prolific. And, and I would say the difference is on Lone Star, the, th the thing was approached differently, right? Like when we came into 911 in that pilot, everything was already up on its feet and you were meeting everybody and they were already there. Whereas with Lone Star, we did kind of a, a premise pilot where Rob, we're, we're in Rob Lowe's point of view, more or less. And he is a firefighter in New York who had survived 9-11, who's asked to come to Texas to rebuild the firehouse that has gone through a similar tragedy. 
not on the scale of 9-11, but similar in that, you know, 90% of that firehouse died at one call. So it is the story of, and also he's just been diagnosed with with first responders cancer from his experience in 9-11, and he's got a son who's going through some issues. So we were sort of coming into it from the from a single point of view of a particular character, and then it started to branch out to the other characters. So I, I, I don't have any problem because I have big names in those roles, because they all know what the show is, and Rob is, you know, Rob's a team player, and and you know, I do feel a certain obligation to make sure that Owen is Owen, which is Rob's character is kind of the tip of the spear on what the narrative is for any given episode. But you know, he'll take a backseat in an episode and then he'll, it'll be about him in an episode, just like on uh, just like on nine one one. How many seasons are, do you have planned out? Is this um, for both nine one one and nine one one Lone Star? Is it as long as they keep getting viewers or do you have an end point where, you know, we're thinking this meant five seasons, six seasons, seven seasons. Well, you know, we're, we're not doing breaking bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like breaking bad. If you look at it sort of has like, a natural three act structure to it. You know, you meet this, you meet this, this high school teacher who gets his diagnosis and then he becomes Michael Corleone over the course of however many seasons. And that sort of has a natural endpoint. Like that's a, that's a three act structured kind of story that Vince is telling on that show. This is different. This is, this is old school bread and butter network television where, you know, it's emergency or it's, you know, it, it's that's the kind of show this is, or or you know, Grey's even, or you know, where it's got its soapy elements, but really the the structure of the show, and I think what makes it interesting that people really kind of hadn't seen before, at least not that I know of, is that we have the the nine one one operators, so we're playing police, fire, and the first responders of the of the dispatch people, and I think that can go on as long as people want to watch it, and I think you know you could even you know. And obviously it works in Lone Star in a different way than it works in 911, but it's fundamentally the same thing. Pushed calls. And really, I think the secret sauce is what's often the secret sauce on TV, particularly network TV, is that you're talking about a found family, people who decide to have each other's backs and be a family. And I think the other thing that has resonated with at least our network audience is that this isn't some ambiguous anti-hero thing, which I love. Yeah. I love all those things. But what this is, this is about the people, the heroes out in the world who run towards danger and strangers who show up to help you out of a crushed car. Those are people we can root for and cheer for. And and then the idea was always, you know, what are the emergencies in those people's personal lives and how do they deal with those emergencies while they're out there dealing with, you know, the more kind of prosaic emergencies that might be prosaic, but they also might be volcanoes and tsunamis and Babies being flushed down <laughs> toilets and tapeworms coming out of well, the As you mentioned earlier, especially with COVID, introducing the real world into your storytelling. Obviously, there's a lot going on right now with Black Lives Matter and the police. Is that something that you're going to be touching upon in your police part of the story as well? Or are we going to you know, kind of keep away from that? Because that's a little, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a hot topic right now. Well, it's a hot topic. But, you know, look, it's interesting. I would say that these shows are not primarily police procedurals although we do have a police presence on the shows and obviously on 911 we have you know an iconic african american right. movie star playing playing the cop and that's angela bassett before 2020 last year we did an episode of 911 called rage 
And one of the stories was Angela's ex-husband, Rockman Dunbar, and her two black kids being pulled over by what was potentially uh, a racist white cop. So we told that story last year, and we're going to continue to tell stories like that in 911, but we're not changing the thrust of our show to accommodate events because we've already been telling those stories. Yeah, if you know no, what I'm no, definitely. Like, like, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue to tell those stories. One thing I did do this year is that there is a, an author, Cheryl Dorsey, who was a black female field sergeant on the LAPD. I mean, she's literally Athena Grant. Like it's, it, if you, if you, if you had assumed that we based Angela's character off of Cheryl Dorsey, it would be hard to argue, even though I didn't know <laughs> Cheryl before this year. I saw her being interviewed after the, after the protests in Los Angeles. And she wrote this book called black and blue. And she is, you know, she is an activist for police reform, but she's also police, right? She has a long and storied history as a field sergeant on the LAPD. And she was, in fact, a young officer during the Rodney King riots. And which so was Athena, right? Like we told that story last right, year in right. flashback. So I hired I hired Sergeant Dorsey this year to be a consultant primarily on Angela's story so that it felt real and it felt, you know, that we that we had a voice of a woman who had actually been there and really knew what she was talking about. So, I mean, I take it all very seriously and, you know, hopefully we'll, we're just, we're not going to be afraid to tell the stories that we want to tell. And we're also not going to feel obligated um, to propagandize. And, and I think it's great that you do have such a strong character like Angela Bassett on the show. Do you get a lot of um, fans reacting to that and saying, you know, thank you for this portrayal? People love Angela. And we, yeah, we get that really for all the characters. You know, I mean, we get that, I think, as much for, you know, Aisha Hines playing a paramedic and, you know, a powerful woman of color on our show as we get for Angela. And But then we also get it for, you know, people love Buck and people love Bobby. And so... Yeah, so um, so if you don't mind, we're also we're gonna take a, a, a small right turn to the Firefly. If you don't mind, yeah, that yeah we did, but there. we kind of it just seemed to like organically move into nine one one from the conversation we were having to start. Yeah, um, sure. Anyways, so I'm sure I'm, I'm gonna start off with the question you probably get a thousand times: Is there any word on Firefly returning to television? No one's told me. I mean, I know that there's been talk here and there about different ways to maybe make something like that happen, but that's probably a question for Joss more than it is for me. So. Are, are you surprised that even this many, uh, how many years has it been? Almost 15, 20 years almost? Um, yeah. 15, 15 years. Yeah. Are you surprised that people still talk about Firefly all the time? There's still such a strong cult, cult following. Because I mean, like I said, the show only was on for, I think, 10 episodes and a movie. Is it amazing that people still talked about it all the time? And there's such a strong fan base? Yeah, it is a little bit. I mean, it doesn't surprise me now because it sort of happened. And so it exists. And so I don't question it. I remember when it started to sort of pick up steam and I was, I remember back then I was thinking that it was, it felt unprecedented, but it, it was sort of like at the perfect time. Like it, it, it got canceled right when like iTunes was starting to appear with TV episodes and there was like the internet and things had an afterlife that wouldn't have five or 10 years before that. So, yeah, I mean, people discovered it, I guess. Do you think if Firefly had come out now, let's say with the actors at the same time of their life, but it was now, with streaming services and everything else, do you think Firefly would have survived? Boy, that is an impossible question to answer. Because I think part of 
the part of the deep love for the show has a little bit something to do with its underdog status and being sort of smothered in the crib. <laughs> it's like all that potential of what could have been, you kind of, you can't argue with it because it doesn't exist. So I don't know. I actually don't know. I mean, it sort of was of its time, but it's impossible to say. Well, I, I, I guess part of my thought process is obviously things such as how the show was aired and also ratings whatnot were with probably a different time period. For in other words, what was considered maybe rough ratings at that time would simply, would be really high ratings probably for a show coming out now. Especially, I mean, CW has shows only with one million viewers that keep getting renewed. I assume Firefly would be a hit. Yeah, it'd be a, it, it would be it would be a smash hit right now if it had those numbers. I don't remember exactly what numbers it got because I'm not great with numbers, which is why I got an S in algebra. <laughs> um, but I, I do remember at the time it was like, well, you know, Buffy's a hit and Firefly's actually getting more viewers, but being a hit on the WB or the CW was not the same as being a hit on Fox. So yeah, now those numbers, you know, people would probably, you know, sell the firstborn <laughs> for the numbers we were getting then. And it was considered a Yeah, a it, it kind of reminds me of the original Star Trek show that, I mean, it lasted three seasons and the ratings, if any show nowadays had the ratings of, Star Trek from the 60s, it would have been amazing, a massive success, one of the biggest shows probably on TV. But for the 60s, when that came out, the numbers were relatively low for that time. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's things are just so different now. And even I remember being asked when Joss released Dr. Horrible, if I thought that that was kind of a viable thing for the future. And it's like, at that time, who knows what the future is? But it did feel like that was kind of a watershed moment in a way. Like, oh, there will be original material produced for the internet and lo and behold it's like you've got netflix and you've got amazon and you've got hulu and and you know you've got youtube and and there're just so many you know everything's so fractured and which is good in a way right because then weird little curated things that don't require you know the numbers of american idol or something or what american yeah. idol used to be or let's let's say the mass singer <laughs> don't require those kind of numbers can exist things that you've never heard of you know Things that I've never heard of. Yeah, I mean, is there also a thought that, like, as you were kind of alluding to earlier, that if the show had had a natural ending, it would have not held up as much? Because one thing about uh, Firefly is that because it never ended, kind of the the last episode kind of just ends, that it lives on in imagination forever, what could have been with these characters, what they could have been doing. And, I mean, I I know there's comic books as well now, but, you know. And you think if it did have a natural ending... There's some of the imagination would have been lost from it that fans have? I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I've done a few of these shows where I tried to give them natural endings because I could see the writing Mm -hmm. on the wall. Like we could tell, we could kind of tell with Wonderfalls that that wouldn't come back. And so we kind of at least put a period on the romance that was, you know, will they or won't they? And then with Terriers in the same way, which nobody watched, like we got, you know, I don't know how many viewers we were getting, but it wasn't a million. But people who watched it loved it. And at the end of those 13 episodes, you know, they're sort of at a crossroads. Will they go left? Will they go right? But we we got through a whole story and left it open to come back. But I think if people watch like those 13 episodes, they'll feel more of a sense of completion than they did on Firefly, Mm. for instance. Well, you also wrote one of my favorite episodes of all time on Firefly, Out of Gas, which I think was one of the most genius pieces of episode of writing for TV that I think I've ever seen. It was, it was so smart when you were writing those backstories for the characters, because you kind of intertwined 
the origin story with what was going on in, in the present time for that story. Did you, had you already discussed with Josh what the backstories were or were you creating it as you went in the writing? That is an interesting question. I remember I was supposed to write that episode and Josh had pitched me something about another pirate ship like Serenity comes up along Serenity. And it was almost like that mirror, mirror Star Trek episode where you have this crew that kind of looks like our crew, but we see the difference, right? Our people have a more, you know, have a moral code and there's honor among those thieves, but these guys are just brigands and they're bad. And I, I do. And he also said, you know, this, and, and we run out of gas. So for about three weeks, I just kind of walked around scratching my head going, I don't know what this is. Like I'm not, no story is kind of coming into my head. So Joss and I, as we were wont to do back then, like when we were trying to break an episode of Angel, we would do the same thing. We just go out to dinner after after work and just sit there and try to figure it out, just the two of us, or sometimes the, you know there'll be somebody else. But in this instance, it was just me and Joss. And Joss looks at me, and we were both sort of like just flailing and trying to figure out what this episode was. And Joss says, "Can we open with Mal being shot in the gut?" And I'm like, yes, yes, let's do that. I have no idea what it means, but let's okay. do that. Because at least it right. was something, right? It wasn't like me trying to figure out something. It was like, you're open up on this great moment. It's like, what happened? And that sort of dictated uh, everything that came after it. You know, the, the idea that the, that we'd run out of gas and we're just sitting there and we were going to die, then it just kind of naturally became the story of Mal's life flashing before his eyes. But the question is what life, right? Do you, do you tell the story of Mal as a little boy or, you know, how he got to this point? And the, I wanted to tell was the story of that ship in a weird way and how he put that crew together because we'd already, we've already seen how Simon and River got on board and also book, right? They were in the pilot and they, they were new arrivals on the, Mm. on the ship. So the idea would be how does, you know, how does, Mal assemble his other crew. And so that's the story that we told. And then once I knew that's what it was going to be, we just talked about, I remember we just sketched it out very briefly on a yellow pad at that dinner. It's like, okay, well, we need to see how Kaylee got on the ship and we need to see how Jane got on the ship. And we need, you know, obviously we need to see how Wash got on the ship. And and those were kind of the people that we had to service. And then once we figured out that that's, we just thought, what's the most interesting way to see how they came into Mal's orbit. Yeah, and I think... But, but, what, but what's interesting is, so th- I think the thing that people are impressed by is that it's not just one flashback, right? Like it starts at a moment of crisis in let's what we'll, we'll call the present day. And then it kind of rolls back to a couple hours before that where they're all having dinner. And it was important for me to show everybody together and happy as a family before all hell broke loose. And so if you look at it, like in that dinner scene, I think I say this in the commentary of the episode, pretty much everything that they're saying to each other is there to help guide a viewer who has never seen the show before understand who all those people are. And right. Somebody's, you know, I call you my wife. I call you my husband. I call you the, the, the pilot. I call you the doctor. Like we, we get who everybody is in that, in that exchange. And then when it came to, to writing it, I think it was a Friday, maybe a Thursday, but I think a Friday that we sat down to have this dinner. And I wrote that thing in probably oh, 48 wow. hours. Like I just went home and spent a weekend and just wrote it. Now, 
did you write it as vignettes? Because each little flashback, it's like its own little mini episode. Did you write the mini episodes first or were you able to write it literally in chronological order in the, in the episode from whatever started the episode to the end point? The only, the only way I could write that thing is as you see it, right? There's, a, there's kind of an internal dream logic to, to the episode. Like it flashes back to these moments in time and there's this thread of Mal you know, trying to get, trying to drag his bloody body up to the ship's engine to put in the part and then get to the red button. That's mm-hmm. the plot, right? It's just him dragging his body up the, up the thing. And then we're flashing back. And, and I just kind of just went off my instinct of like, okay, for this to be clear, what needs to have been said? Well, I need to explain what this thing is that's in his hand. And I have to explain how he got shot. So what led up to that? And then I just, I had to kind of write it the way that you see it. If I had tried to break that down, if you, if you take it, what's funny is I got a note from the, from the network, I think after we sent them the first cut of it, which was not all that different from what you saw on TV. And the note that I got back was, isn't it a little bit too fancy for its own good? Can't you just put it in linear order? Can you put it in chronological order? And I said, if you put this thing in chronological order, it wouldn't make any sense. Right. Because it's not like, it's not memento. It's not like we, it's not like we took one story and just kind of scrambled it up. It's like, it's like Mal meeting Kaylee under the engine, having sex with the old engineer has to be juxtaposed with Kaylee as the engineer going, I don't know how to fix this. If you don't have those two things together, the one thing does not make sense without the other thing. So when they got when they gave me that note, I said to Joss, if they force me to recut this, I'm going to quit. And, and he said, I totally back you up 100%. I can't imagine the episode uh, working any other way. I mean, the way it works. It and the other thing is, too, though, it seems almost insulting to the audience in that we couldn't figure out that cut, you know, the way you had it. Yeah, there was nobody who saw that thing who was confused. Uh, there's nothing confusing about it. You know what I mean? Like you may be saying to yourself, gee, I wonder what happened. But for an audience in, in 20, 2005 or whenever that thing aired, they were sophisticated enough to understand what it is they were watching and to understand that, you know, any question that they had was about to be answered. It's also not that confusing. There's no, the only, the, the whole plot is, you know, we blew a gasket. We blew a gasket and now everything is screwed. And we don't have a gasket. What do you do when you're in the middle of space and there's no gas station? That's all. That's and all it is. Also, you because of when the show occurs in the series, you already do know these characters if you're an older fan as well. And you can already right. get a sense of, wow, this must have happened before <laughs> this character just entered the ship. This this makes sense. You know, it, 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 yes. And also just production wise, we were careful to make sure that you could tell. Right. So. When you see that first scene of Zoe and Mal, you know, coming through the, through the, through the cargo bay doors and seeing the ship for the first time or where he's showing it to her, it's, it's got a particular look to it because all those flashbacks were shot on reversal film, which was a bit of a risk because reversal film is not the same as a regular 35 millimeter or even 16 millimeter film. You know, reversal means there's no negative, right? So you're not going, you can't go back to the negative mm. and fix it because the negative is the film itself. So you get one shot at it. But we had a great DP, David Boyd, and he wanted to shoot on reversal because it had a very specific look to it. It wasn't that we just 
kind of made everything a little more glowy or a little more green in post-production. That's the way he lit it and that's the way he shot it. So when you see those flashbacks and then it cuts to what the show normally looks like or it cuts to the flashback from an hour ago, that has more of a warm glow. And then the stuff in the very, very present day after Mal's been shot has kind of a blue look to it, like it's a very cold look. And then you have the sort of warm, glowy stuff from like five years ago. You put those three looks together and your eye is already giving you the information that you need to tell you where and, you are. And I th- also think is um, a great thing that you said when you said the idea is sort of that Mal's life flashes before his eyes and his life starts when the sh- crew first comes to, starts coming together. It's kind of like saying that his life really does begin when this crew becomes an actual crew or starts forming. Yeah, at least the life that we're interested in. And I guess the other thing that I don't remember exactly whose idea it was. It may have been Joss. It may have been me. I don't remember. But I knew I wanted to start it with the voiceover of the used spaceship salesman, you know, making the pitch. And you think he's talking about Serenity. And then the very end of the episode is this moment where you realize Mel hasn't been paying a bit of attention to him because he's looking across the used spaceship lot and he sees Serenity sort of sitting there sadly by it by itself. And it's almost like seeing, you know, catching the eye of a beautiful woman across the room at a crowded party. You know, it's one, it's one enchant, some enchanted evening or something. But as soon as we realized that, oh, well, we put that together and I don't even know if we quite understood what we had, but when we watched it, we realized, oh, this entire episode has been a love letter to mm. the ship. It's about, I mean, Mal's walking around and patting it, you know, patting the ship sort of lovingly. And talking about we got to get to the we got to get to the shuttles and I'm going to stay with the ship and I'm going down with the ship and the truth is it's all about you know the captain's relationship to his boat and what that boat represents for him and what it represents for him is liberty, freedom, autonomy, agency, and family. It's like it's all those things. And so if he loses that ship, he loses all of that. And that's what it's about. And I think people understood it kind of on a visceral level. And also, it's very similar to when you discuss your 911 programs, the idea of a found family. That is, to me, the very essence yep. of a found family was Firefly. Yep. And it, 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 like I said, the, the show is, was, out of gas is definitely one of my favorite episodes of any series of all time because they say it was so in- intelligent. You also were, uh, co-wrote another episode um, that I really liked called The Message. And I thought that was another absolutely brilliant episode. Was that oh, one? That you, did you co-write it? Was that with Josh? Yeah, that was with Josh. So who came up with the, the phrase when it says, um, when you can't run anymore, you crawl. When you can't do that, well, you know the rest, that part. Is that Josh or was that yours? That's Josh. It, it, was, it was very well done. Did, what, did, did you have a plan of where the show was going to go? When you, like, when after the, the show after it got canceled, were there other episodes that you had finished that you were thought to yourself this, you know, that would have um, aired? I mean, that's the, that's the question I always get on all these shows. And the truth is, by the time you get to that stage in a first season, you are just desperately trying to generate material to stay ahead. I think we were behind. I mean, and now I'm making it sound like I'm just chronically behind <laughs> on everything. And I'm sure that the executives at the studio would nod their heads vigorously and say, yes, it's always <laughs> late. Um, but, you know, you can be, I, I just generally don't get to the point where I'm thinking in terms of exactly where I want to go with something. Cause I'm just trying to get the next thing done. Uh, like I said, out of gas was written in a weekend because we were behind. The other reason Out of Gas was written, incidentally, is because we were over budget. And so I needed to write something that didn't have any locations in it. I needed to write something that we could just shoot on the stage with the cast, a couple of guest casts, but that entire episode takes place on the ship. 
there's, I think, a scene where Jane gets recruited. That's still on the stage with just a backdrop of like a desert, right? It's not hmm. really outside. Now, the, the, the one of the main nemesis on the show were those guys with the blue hands. Obviously, you, the show didn't have an opportunity to explain who they were. Were they aliens, robots? What, what were they supposed to be? They were like operatives. They were some form of the, the alliance, the, you know, the, the secret government part of the alliance. So a little, a little bit like what you saw in the movie. Gotcha. The other thing that I think Firefly became famous for is, that, is the idea that on the set, it was a tight family. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation with, I think, Philion and Jules State, I think is how you pronounce the name. I might be wrong. Um, uh-huh. How tight the crew was. Was the people behind the set as tight as well? And were you guys as tight with the cast as the mythology is with them? Yes, I would say that's true. I mean, I, I don't I don't see everybody, although interestingly enough, when when is this gonna when 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 is this gonna it normally this takes podcast? three to four weeks. Okay, so I think by then this should be already confirmed. But I, I just I just hired Gina Torres to be on season two oh, nice. of Star. So I'm pretty excited about that. I mean she, Gina Torres. She, she's, she's a, a phenomenal guy. actress. Yeah, she's amazing. And then I, you know, I, I talked to Alan a lot and it, yeah, I mean, we were tight. It was, it was, it was a special moment for everybody, I think. And, you know, you often don't realize things are special until they're over. But I think in this instance, pretty much everyone did. I, I do find it interesting that it sounds like even the actors are as interested in this show c- coming back or at least returning for a little while as pe- the fans are. Oh, the actors love it. I mean, you know, Nathan is constantly talking about how it was his best job. Yeah. That's, Everyone loves it. Like I said, I, just as an old school fanboy of it, it really was a show that I thought was was phenomenal. The only issue I always ever have the show now is that when I watch it, I get frustrated that I don't have more episodes. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that's good. Because, I mean, obviously, uh, but I will say, though, in my imagination, obviously, the show always has continued, which is kind of nice thing about the show on some level. Yeah, I mean, then when I look back at it, I'm I'm pretty proud of it. I I, th- I mean, I do love it, and I would say that you know, if we were doing it today, it would there's obviously things that just we do probably a little bit differently. I mean, I think, for instance, you know, the fact that we had them speaking this sort of bastardized bastardized version of Chinese, there could have been you know, sort of more or even any kind of Asian on screen mm. characters. Like, I, I just think that was a mistake. Maybe not a mistake, but just not something that, you know, in t- 2005, we were all that cognizant of. But I think I think that so would have been nice. right now, Firefly does continue in the comic book by Greg Pak. Is that something you're aware of? Like, do you ever look at the issues? Or is that something that's totally divided from what we consider maybe canon from the creators like yourself and Josh? Well, I mean, I know Joss is involved in all that stuff, probably. So it probably is canon, for sure. Probably the book backstory that I think Zach Whedon maybe wrote that. But I have not seen those comics. That, no, that's, that's understandable. I guess I, I will, I've tried write, reading the comics a few times, but what I found was without the actors and their voices in the issue, it just didn't feel the same. Like there's something about their interactions and their chemistry that just elevated it way more than I think you can get in a comic book. That's probably true. I mean, I remember as a kid always, you know, gobbling up any of that ancillary Star Trek stuff, whether it was the animated series or whether it was comic books or whatever. And it, it, it was just never quite the same. And then, of course, they made that first Star Trek movie. And it was like, wow, that, that was no, that wasn't it really wasn't. Uh, <laughs> but, then, but, then, but then Wrath of Khan came along and changed everything. Well, so 
There's always uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think quite often you appreciate can appreciate what an actor can bring to a role and what the chemistry of between characters can bring until you see it without them and you think, oh crap, this is not the same. It's just not. No, I mean that, that that's the alchemy that you can't predict. That is the alchemy that you can't predict. I mean, you were asking, you know, did I think nine one one was going to be a hit? But it's like, well, part of that is the alchemy of we just cast the show right. Like people were interested in seeing these actors, you know, Kenny Choi, Aisha Hines, you know, you know, people that you don't normally see heading up a network TV show who goddamn well should be. And people just like seeing Peter Krause interact with Oliver Stark or whatever. And it's the same on on Firefly. You can't you can't quantify that. I think about something like the X-Files. It's like, okay, so David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. That that that's yeah. a given, right? You just get that makes sense, but at the time you didn't necessarily know that that was going to work. Yeah, for me, it's always I look at it the same way with Stargate SG. I don't know if you ever seen the show. The SG one team when you have Richard Dean Anderson and Christopher Judge and Amanda Tapping. Once again, the show doesn't work if those characters don't work well together. And right. when when you're when you're filming nine one one nine one one Lone Star, when you're before you started filming, did you could you see in the maybe rehearsal or whatever that they did have that chemistry or did it just kind of unfold? I would say it unfolded a little bit because again, we didn't really rehearse 911. We just started shooting, right? We just started shooting. So, so we didn't really have that. I mean, we did we did audition some people. I think we auditioned Oliver Stark who was getting ready to pack up and move back to England because he wasn't getting any work. But, you know, we sort of looked at the more traditional kind of like handsome leading men for a TV show, which by the way is the hardest <laughs> thing to find. It's really hard it's really hard to find a guy who is a star, like everyone's looking for their Brad Pitt for their TV show. Well, there's a reason Brad Pitt's mm. a movie star. So it's, it's hard to find a, a TV star that is a male, particularly. There's a lot of great women out there, actually. But it's hard to find like the, the young guy. And in fact, we were going to, I think, initially have the captain of the fire team be like sort of 35 years old. And he was going to be like the, you know, the guy. And then we, we kind of invented Buck's character so that we'd have a younger guy. And then we were like, screw this. Let's find, let's find a guy who's 50. Let's find, you know, a papa to, to, to be the father of this team. And then, you know, we sort of came up with Peter Krause and it's like, he's perfect. Right. He is, he is. It's interesting. I would say Peter Krause is kind of the Gary Cooper of my show. He's taciturn. He can be funny. He can hang back and let other people, you know, do their thing, but he's, he's solid, like a rock. So, and on, on Lone Star, it was a little bit different. Like we, we did a lot of auditions and I had seen Sierra McLean on Mindhunter and she just blew me away. I don't know if you saw the second I, season I, I of Mindhunter, but she plays, you know, this young woman who works, you know, as a behind the counter at this hotel and she interacts with our, our hero. And I just thought, who is this woman? <laughs> She's amazing. So I brought her in to read for the 911 operator for Grace on Lone Star, and she she had exactly what I thought. But then I also read Jim Perrick, who had been on True Blood, and he'd done some movies, and he'd done some cable stuff, but hadn't really done anything on network TV. And Jim Perrick comes in and just blows me away. But then, I you know, I had this trans character. So it's like, well, are there any trans actors out there? Do they even exist? Well, sure enough, we had, I don't know, 10 or 12 trans actors come in and read for this part and there's brian smith and i'm like i would cast that guy for anything he's so good but he also happened to be trans and it was important that we had a real trans actor playing that character so we found these people 
And it was, I think, a little bit more of a roll of the dice with, with Lone Star because we cast a bunch of unknowns, or at least unknown to us. And it turns out they have just as much unique chemistry uh, amongst each other as my cast on 911 does. So thank God it, for it, that. It seems like it's almost like fate sometimes when a show just kind of comes together and, and, and just the amount of different events that must occur for that show to come out just the way it did. And I think yeah. that's really cool. And another show that you're executive producing, because um, I know we're, I've had you for a bit, that you're executive producing um, Ratchet for, it's for Netflix, correct? Now, yeah. once again, for any reader who does, uh, listener who doesn't know, uh, Ratchet is based on One Flew, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What was Evan yeah. Romanski's pitch to you to um, get you on board? Well, Evan, it, well, the pitch was from Ryan, who said, you will come and do this thing. I'm like, yes, sir. I'll be right there. <laughs> Here, let me just put down these other three shows I'm doing. But, you know, Evan had written, I think, I think he'd written the pilot as a spec. Like he was just, I, th- I, I if I'm not mistaken, he was like just looking for like an iconic character that he could put at the center of his pilot. And he came up with this idea. Well, I wonder what Nurse Ratchet's backstory would be. And so Ryan, who is a, he's a genius in many ways, like the most talented producer I have ever met. Um just a genius, but he's also a genius when it comes to spotting ideas that he, that interest him. So whether it was the people versus OJ or American horror story that he created with Brad Falchuk or Glee, which was also brought to him. And then he and Brad and Ian sort of, you know, reconfigured the idea, but he can see, he can see a diamond in the rough. Like he had read, I think a screenplay that became feud, right? We did, we did the story of the, the rivalry between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, which was like a, the dream year of my life, writing and, and directing that show with, you know, Susan Sarandon and, and Judy Davis and Jessica Lange. And I mean, it was like you just you were in hog heaven with all the period stuff. But, you know, so he can see something that interests him. And so I think what you'll see with Ratchet, it really is a Ryan Murphy joint. Like it's out of his skull, how he took Evan's concept and made it into, you know, Murphy World. It's very, it's, it's, it's almost like, it reminds me a little bit of season two of American Horror Story. Like it's period, it's Sarah Paulson and it's bold and surprising and scary and hilarious. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really what you would want from Ryan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if I'm hearing you right, so the idea came before the character? No, the character was, the character was, the character obviously came before because it's, it, it's an, it's an, an existing, um, material. Evan wrote, Evan Romanski wrote this pilot for Ratchet. I think what had happened was maybe he had, he had sort of been thinking about Bates gotcha. Mitchell and saying, wow, that's pretty cool. You take these iconic characters from this movie and you tell their origin story. I think that may have been his inspiration. And then he sort of picked Ratchet from Cuckoo's Nest and then kind of did a similar thing. And that sparked with Ryan and and the rest is history. Like Ryan Murphy can get something like that made. Ryan has a very specific, you know, approach to things. And, and that's what um, So because it's a prequel, but obviously you're gonna have a lot of fans looking for Easter eggs that connect to Once Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. Are there going to be a lot of connection between the, the Ratchet prequel and the character that show up later in the, the, the classic movie? I mean, it's not like we're setting up that hospital or those, Cuckoo's Nest characters. It really is the story of this woman in the forties and kind of, you know, her mysterious background. And so, I mean, you, what you're seeing is the, the creation of that character 
or who, who you would imagine she was before. And, you know, it's a very dark and twisty road into so, the past. Um, one of the um, series descriptions I saw for Ratchet is it described as being clandestine and something that the nurses has come to the, this particular institution or hospital, whatever it is, on a particular mission. So is it more like suspense mystery based? Is it more dr- drama based? It is absolutely, it's drama horror. Like it's, it is, like I said, it's, it's, it's probably got more in common with American Horror Story than it does with, say, Feud. Hmm. And also at, at the hell, like you said, Sarah Paulson, she's in, that's like, seems like another perfect casting that you've come up with because she is phenomenal in almost everything she does. She um, she's also the executive producer as well. Am I correct on that or am I wrong? She is. No, she is. So what, what can, so it's how many episodes and is this set up for multiple seasons or is it going to be a, a set like miniseries? Oh, it could definitely go for more seasons. And, and I suspect if, you know, if it, if it catches on, it probably um, will. How many years does it, it's supposed to be set prior to Once Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest? I think it takes place in the 40s. So, you know, a couple of decades anyway. I mean, I think the idea would be that we, we could explore different decades leading up to leading And up it, to it is Nest. the movie, not the book it's connected. It's a prequel to? Yeah, I would say that's right. And it comes out in September. 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 It, it, it just it, it sounds like a fantastic concept because once again, once Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is a is a phenomenal movie. It's obviously one of the great classics of the last half a decade. Is yeah, there sure. is there any pressure in doing that show? You can, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, I think if you bowed to that sort of pressure, you wouldn't be Ryan Murphy. Like, I think the thing about Ryan that is so great. Look, Ryan's very cognizant about things like that and understands you know sort of legacies that he's that he's borrowing, but he is, uh, he's fearless in the, the way he wants to tell stories. And I think that's what makes him such a success. So your role as an executive producer on that show, is it basically to let Ryan do what he wants to do? Or are you there pitching ideas with him? Cause once again, you're also an accomplished writer yourself. So do you feel, you know, are you also saying, you know, here's some stories or screen ideas I want you to work on? Well, what I, what I did on ratchet more or less, I mean, I, I joked and said I was Ryan's emotional support <laughs> writer like mostly I was, I was in the writer's room with Evan and Ryan and Ian and the other writers when we were breaking stories and putting them on the board and, you know, problem solving. That's mostly what I did. I consulted more than anything else on Ratchet and sort of helped guide some of the story breaking, but not to the degree that I do on like, you know, 911 or even horror story where I'm much more hands-on. Well, like I said, I definitely look forward to seeing it. And once again, we, we spoke for a while. So I want to thank you so much, uh, Mr. Minear for speaking with me. You're a fan, you're fantastic. And like I said, you wrote one of my favorite episodes of TV in history. So I think, I thank you so that. much. Now you need, to, now, now you need to go watch Terriers. And All right, I would again. love to have you back on the show. And also I would like to next time we come on, talk some American horror story. I was trying to think of what some of the other shows I want to talk to you about. And unfortunately, American Horror Story didn't make the cut because of time constraints. But I would love to talk to you about that as well at some point. Sure. Thank you so much. Okay. And we're back. That was fun. Man, that was so cool. Uh, Tim on your wrote some of the some really good episodes of Angel. I, I got I'm not a fanboy on Angel, but I was a big I'm a big fan. I love that show. If you haven't watched Angel, definitely go check it out. He also wrote four episodes for Firefly, which was an, another amazing show. So thank you so much, Tim, for coming on. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for, for doing that all, everything that you do. And if you like that, if you like what you heard of us talking with with screenwriter Tim Minear today, 
go to spoilerverse.com, check out all of our back issues, check out everything we got going there. We got so much stuff. Over 500 episodes of this show for you to check out with tons of people we talk to. We got Bridges and Geek Towns talking about news. We got Music Print Radio on music. We got Nerds from the Crypt on horror. We got Funny Book Friends doing Comic Book Deep Dives. We got so much awesome stuff on the network. You need to go check it out. Again, spoilerverse.com. And while you're there, check out all of our articles and reviews and previews. We got posts and going every single day talking about comic books and movies and, and rumors and stuff like that. There's a rumor verse going on for you, so check that out. And go to the store, buy a t-shirt, buy a hoodie, buy a face mask, buy something to help us keep this, this all going. This, this all costs money, and we need money to do that. So you can go there and you can buy stuff and look cool, look fly as hell, and help us out. You can go to scpod.us slash discord and join our public discourse server. We have so much fun stuff going on there. You definitely want to be a part of that. So go do that. And when you do that, make sure you go and say hi and, and, and talk to Talk to Casey, talk to Jerry, talk to all of us. We'd love it. And lastly, but not leastly, I'm going to end you the same thing that we end every time. And that is... The Notions of Podcasts. We are Cthulhu. And ask Cthulhu about you to do. Open the mind and read more.